I've started teaching biology at a community college here in Michigan. It's no great living, and I don't have access to benefits or anything. I won't be able to sustain this for very long, but the work is fantastic. I love being in the classroom, reading the textbooks, putting together lessons. I feel like I connect well with students. And moreover, when I started higher education, it was in this kind of environment. I spent my first few years of study in one or another community college. Actually, I have two associate's degrees, one from a community college in Michigan and another in Florida. So the majority of my classroom experiences have taken place in those institutions. And some of the best instructors were there too. My mission right now is to become a great teacher and capable of a range of different courses. To that end, I am teaching introductory biology and I'm studying anatomy and physiology as a kind of primer to get back to the basics. I've been given permission to join the anatomy dissection lab on Monday mornings, working with cadavers. I wanna to learn to be an effective instructor of anatomy. My colleagues have been really helpful, so I'm in a good place. If these opportunities tend to slow down my production of podcast episodes, I'm sure you can forgive me. I have no plans yet of throwing in the towel. Whenever I think I might be running out of steam on this journey, I encounter new ideas that reinvigorate my spirit. One such set of ideas was the dish brain study. I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and it's worth considering its implications further as they apply to the intrinsic values of living beings. Remember, Kagan et al. used cortical neurons cultured on top of a microelectrode array and effectively taught them to play Pong. The biological neuronal network was able to be conditioned because it expressed a preference for certain kinds of sensory input, in this case, electrical stimuli. I quoted to you from the discussion section of Kagan et al. Here's a brief excerpt, quote, note that a miss results in unpredictable outcomes because the ball resets and its subsequent motion is unpredictable. In terms of the informational entropy of the stimulus being delivered, while an unpredictable stimulus would have high entropy, the silent condition still entails higher entropy relative to successful play as the ball restarts in a random direction. This is consistent with our results, as the more unpredictable an outcome, the greater the observed learning effect. As the biological neuronal network learns to avoid uncertainty, unquote. Entropy. That's the word that has me coming back to this well. Whereas higher entropy entails greater uncertainty, and lower entropy entails greater certainty, could this be an important clue as to where positively and negatively valenced experiences become manifest? In principle, this is a testable hypothesis, perhaps ultimately testable in vivo. I've spoken to you about what I see as descriptive as well as valenced qualia, which is to say qualia with intrinsic value, pain and pleasure in all their varieties. I think I'll go way back into the archive of the podcast to dredge up an old discussion. Okay, I said the following in episode 7 on the evolution of functional consciousness. I said, quote, I am proposing three minimal developments that would have been necessary for the evolution of functional human consciousness from an epiphenomenal conscious precursor. These are one, the capacity for consciousness to directly or indirectly modify behavior. Two, the establishment of subjectively preferential qualia. And three, the capacity for consciousness to represent dynamics at least over some short time period. I have argued that human consciousness is functional, and I accept that the human species arose entirely by natural processes of evolution. Moreover, human consciousness is an emergent property of a neural substrate composed of meanings derived from specific arrangements of that neural substrate. 
Those meanings are not arbitrary, and I suggest that they must contain a capacity for causal power in the objective world above and beyond the capacity of the summed neural substrate constituents from which they emerge. The mechanism for how emergent meanings leverage causal power upon the activities of their neural substrate is, at least in principle, empirically discoverable. With regard to preferential qualia, there is no doubt that such things exist. Over time, with these three developments in place, conceptual modalities arising from different neuronal systems would combine with additional behavioral outputs to produce a complex, functional consciousness. With these three developments established, natural selection would favor those of the organisms whose preferences are best matched to adaptive behaviors. Daniel Dennett might refer to these developments as cranes, having arisen from mindless Darwinian processes, but having the capacity to open up new areas in evolutionary design space. By means of this refinement, consciousness would no longer be epiphenomenal. I propose that by this means, the specific kinds of qualia we are familiar with were sculpted by evolution across countless generations. The qualia were no more shaped by the evolution of neuronal circuitry than the neuronal circuits were shaped by the qualia. If this is correct, then modern human phenomenal consciousness results indirectly from generations of feedback between adaptive behaviors and the neural structures from which qualia emerge." Unquote. All right then, three minimal developments necessary for consciousness to have become functional as it clearly is in the human brain. One, the capacity for consciousness to modify behavior. Two, the establishment of subjectively preferential qualia. And three, the capacity for consciousness to represent ongoing coherent dynamics. The second one, the preferential qualia has been a persistent mystery to me. How can qualia be better or worse than other qualia? What is pain? How do we come to suffer? There is no doubt that we do. How can this be instantiated in a physical system? With something like visual perception, we can notice that there is a representational map of what is in front of us, and presumably there is a real world outside of our body and mind which is laid out in space in front of us too. So perception is a map of a real territory. The colors and textures, shading and brightness, and all the rest might be artifacts of the map, useful to us but not betraying any actual feature intrinsic to the world outside. Certain kinds of features have subjective labels of these sorts, and that make them stand out, not unlike the black triangles which mark mountain peaks and the encircled stars which mark capital cities. Nevertheless, the perception map is a kind of copy of the real world. Pain, though, cannot be a copy of some objective worldly feature. Pain is something new, something subjective only. If redness or blueness is a subjective interpretation of certain kinds of data from the world outside, what is it that pain is representative or interpretive of? What kind of data are these? It is here that the ideas we encountered in Kagan et al. could begin to shed some light. Even cultured cortical neurons showed a preference for certain kinds of incoming data. They altered their own collective functioning in order to increase their access to these preferred sensory data, and or they altered their collective functioning in order to avoid chaotic or random sensory data. Do chaotic, random, or unexpected data have the potential to cause pain, or at least discomfort? In the words of the authors of that study, the network learned to avoid uncertainty. Why would it do that? In order to reduce the amount of entropy. Does the entropy within an integrated conscious system determine what it is like to be that system? 
Does rising entropy feel unpleasant for such a system? Does falling entropy feel good? In order to get a better understanding of this, I needed to read more about the free energy principle. Carl Friston has a paper in Nature Reviews Neuroscience called The Free Energy Principle, A Unified Brain Theory. I'll share some of it with you now, the parts where he explicitly describes the principle and how it works. Friston writes, quote, The defining characteristic of biological systems is that they maintain their states and form in the face of a constantly changing environment. From the point of view of the brain, the environment includes both the external and the internal milieu. The maintenance of order is seen at many levels and distinguishes biological from other self-organizing systems. Indeed, the physiology of biological systems can be reduced almost entirely to their homeostasis. More precisely, the repertoire of physiological and sensory states in which an organism can be is limited, and these states define the organism's phenotype. Mathematically, this means that the probability of these interoceptive and extraceptive sensory states must have low entropy. In other words, there is a high probability that a system will be in any of a small number of states, and a low probability that it will be in the remaining states. Entropy is also the average self-information, or surprise. More formally, it is the negative log probability of an outcome. Here, a fish out of water would be in a surprising state, both emotionally and mathematically. A fish that frequently forsook water would have high entropy. Note that both surprise and entropy depend on the agent. What is surprising for one agent, for example being out of water, may not be surprising to another. Biological agents must therefore minimize the long-term average of surprise to ensure that their sensory entropy remains low. In other words, biological systems somehow manage to violate the fluctuation theorem, which generalizes the second law of thermodynamics. In short, the long-term distal imperative of maintaining states within physiological bounds translates into a short-term proximal avoidance of surprise. Surprise here relates not just to the current state, which cannot be changed, but also to the movement from one state to another, which can change. This motion can be complicated and itinerant provided that it revisits a small set of states called a global random attractor that are compatible with survival. It is this motion that the free energy principle optimizes. So far, all we have said is that biological agents must avoid surprises to ensure that their states remain within physiological bounds. But how do they do this? A system cannot know whether its sensations are surprising and could not avoid them even if it did know. This is where free energy comes in. Free energy is an upper bound on surprise, which means that if agents minimize free energy, they implicitly minimize surprise. Crucially, free energy can be evaluated because it is a function of two things to which the agent has access, its sensory states and a recognition density that is encoded by its internal states. For example, neuronal activity and connection strengths. The recognition density is a probabilistic representation of what caused a particular sensation. This variational free energy construct was introduced into statistical physics to convert difficult probability density integration problems into easier optimization problems. It is an information theoretic quantity, like surprise, as opposed to a thermodynamic quantity. Variational free energy has been exploited in machine learning and statistics to solve many inference and learning problems. In this setting, surprise is called the negative model evidence. 
This means that minimizing surprise is the same as maximizing the sensory evidence for an agent's existence. If we regard the agent as a model of its world, in the present context, free energy provides the answer to a fundamental question. How do self-organizing adaptive systems avoid surprising states? They can do this by minimizing their free energy. Unquote. Surprise here corresponds to the uncertainty described in the dish brain study. A surprising stimulus would be given to the network when the ball in the pong game was missed simply because the location of the ball would reset to a random starting point. The electrical stimuli which provided sensory input for the network would reflect the position of the ball in the paddle. By returning the ball when the paddle was in the correct position, its trajectory continued in a predictable way. It seems obvious to me that predictable inputs from the world make our existence tolerable. When something unexpected happens, it grabs our attention and makes us nervous. This could be as mundane as the drumbeat thumping that occurs when we veer too far off of lane on the freeway. It could be an awkward and unexpected response from a person in a social situation. It could be the panicked sense of falling that occurs when we take a step in the dark and there is no ground where we expected it. How fearful would it be if you began hearing voices or th seeing things that aren't there? How over-immersed you would feel in the chaos of entropy? Does this imply that increased uncertainty within thalamocortical networks is what gives us a sense of surprise? That's a hypothesis. But I would expect natural selection to have crafted means of making networks behave under appropriate circumstances to give us the sense of surprise or shock. If Kagan et al.'s observations in cultured neurons extend to the thalamocortical system in vivo, then evolutionary processes could mold network activities toward adaptive fluctuations in entropy. These processes would not simply be giving us a certain quality of experience by chance. Rather, the global neural correlates of consciousness will have undergone considerable selection. When we left Friston, he asked the question, how do self-organizing adaptive systems avoid surprising states? They do this by minimizing their free energy. Let's proceed. Quote, Agents can suppress free energy by changing the two things it depends on. They can change sensory input by acting on the world, or they can change their recognition density by changing their internal states. This distinction maps nicely onto action and perception. One can see what this means in more detail by considering three mathematically equivalent formulations of free energy. The first formulation expresses free, ener free energy as energy minus entropy. This formulation is important for three reasons. First, it connects the concept of free energy as used in information theory with concept used in statistical thermodynamics. Second, it shows that the free energy can be evaluated by an agent because the energy is the surprise about the joint occurrence of sensations and their perceived causes, whereas the entropy is simply that of the agent's own recognition density. Third, it shows that free energy rests on a generative model of the world, which is expressed in terms of the probability of a sensation and its causes occurring together. This means that an agent must have an implicit generative model of how causes conspire to produce sensory data. It is this model that defines both the nature of the agent and the quality of the free energy bound on surprise. The second formulation expresses free energy as surprise plus a divergent term. 
The perceptual divergence is just the difference between the recognition density and the conditional density or posterior density of the causes of a sensation given the sensory signals. This conditional density represents the best possible guess about the true causes. The difference between the two densities is always non-negative and free energy is therefore an upper bound on surprise, thus minimizing free energy by changing the recognition density without changing sensory data reduces the perceptual divergence so that the recognition density becomes the conditional density and the free energy becomes surprise. The third formulation expresses free energy as complexity minus accuracy, using terms from the model comparison literature. Complexity is the difference between the recognition density and the prior density on causes. It is also known as Bayesian surprise and is the difference between the prior density, which encodes beliefs about the state of the world before sensory data are assimilated, and posterior beliefs, which are encoded by the recognition density. Accuracy is simply the surprise about sensations that are expected under the recognition density. This formulation shows that minimizing free energy by changing sensory data without changing the recognition density, must increase the accuracy of an agent's predictions. In short, the agent will selectively sample the sensory inputs that it expects. This is known as active inference. An intuitive, exam an intuitive example of this process, when it is raised into consciousness, would be feeling our way in darkness. We anticipate what we might touch next and then try to confirm those expectations. In summary, the free energy rests on a model of how sensory data are generated and on a recognition density on the model's parameters, that is, sensory causes. Free energy can be reduced only by changing the recognition density to change conditional expectations about what is sampled or by changing sensory samples so that they conform to expectations." Unquote. Let's take one more look at the three necessary components of a functional conscious mind. 1. The capacity for consciousness to modify behavior. This might amount, in terms of the free energy principle, to the capacity to lower free energy. 2. The establishment of subjectively preferential qualia. This is reflected in the inherent preference of a system for lower entropy, which is to say greater certainty. 3. The capacity for consciousness to represent ongoing coherent dynamics. This is what Friston referred to as the recognition density. Taken together, the free energy principle might account for the necessities I have insisted upon. The conscious agent must have a sensory model of the ongoing conditions. These set the expectations. It must have an inherent preference for order and predictability, and it must be able to alter either the expectations themselves or the sensory inputs. The sensory inputs are altered in a dynamic fashion by changes in behavior that make a difference in the environment. As we proceed in our investigation of consciousness, we should improve our means of tracking entropy within the thalamocortical brain. No doubt, as I have described in the past, there are places within this complex supernetwork that will have rising entropy relative to the others, places in which the entropy is falling. These relative dynamics in entropy could sculpt the landscape of conscious experience. Subsystems which stand out compared to others produce the descriptive qualia. Rising entropy across some or all of them might be understood as suffering.